Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, we're blessed to have a guest speaker. Sean McDowell is with us all the way from California, and he is a fantastic speaker. He's actually the teacher at a Christian school. He's written many books on apologetics and worldview, and uh, he also travels around and guest speaks at many churches. And this morning, we're blessed to have him here at Calvary uh, as he studies the Word with us. So why don't you give a warm round of applause and a welcome for Sean McDowell. Good morning. What a joy to be with you here today. I actually have the privilege of having my family with me. Flew in on Friday and yesterday we went to the zoo. I have a two-year-old daughter who kind of looks like the girl in Monsters, Inc. with the hair that goes like that. And a five-year-old son who's really into superheroes. In fact, for his birthday last spring, I took him to see the new Wolverine. I'm just kidding. Not at five. He needs to be at least six before I let him see that one. But we went to the zoo. We had a great time. I asked my daughter, I said, what's your favorite animal? She said, the mingos. She said, I like them. So we had a good time. Uh, Thanks for having me. I want to draw your attention, since time is short, to a passage in the Old Testament that has always intrigued me. And I'll read it for you. You can turn there if you want to, but I'll read it for you quickly. It's in the book of Judges. And it's the generation of Joshua that had received the promise of Abraham to enter the promised land. And in Judges chapter 2, it describes what happened to that generation as they settled into the land. Judges chapter 2 verse 7 says this, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived him, who had seen the great work of the Lord which he had done for, for Israel. All that generation was gathered to their fathers. But then it says, And there rose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. The sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers. You see what happened? There's one generation of Joshua who entered into Canaan. They saw the work of the Lord. They were faithful and they served him throughout their lifetime. But then another generation rose up. They didn't know the Lord. They forgot him. They forsook him and did evil in his sight. My question I always wonder is, I wish there was another passage here. So as a parent and as a teacher and someone who cares about this next generation, I could see what did that generation fail to do to pass the baton, so to speak, to the generation coming behind them? How did they drop the ball? And why do I raise this this morning? Because you know, right now of high school students who are seniors, who say, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Do you know within four years in the university, between 58 and 88% will have walked away from their faith? And the question is, why? Why are so many young people chucking their faith when they get to the university, the age of the university? Well, I believe there's a lot of factors that can play into this. But one reason in particular I want to talk about this morning, because I'm convinced as a church, we're dropping the ball on equipping this gen- next generation in this way. I, uh, I love listening to a radio show host by the name of Dennis Prager. 
Dennis Prager's on in the morning. He's a Jewish talk show host about politics and religion. Very insightful. And he noticed something that he wanted to get to the bottom to bottom of. He found out that couples who experience the sudden tragic loss of a child, do you know that a majority of them were likely to get separated or divorced because of that tragedy? And he wanted to know, he said, why do some couples, is their marriage destroyed by this, and others will actually become stronger? What makes a difference? So he started to interview couples and do research, and his book, which is very well titled, Happiness is a Serious Problem, he said, I think I found the difference. He said, he said, couples who have a philosophy of life that could make sense of the sudden tragic loss of a child were far more likely to stay together and weather the storm of that tragedy. You realize what he's saying? He's saying when tragedy or difficulty comes, it's our philosophy of life that shapes how we respond to it. One of the big reasons why so many people, are, young people are walking away from their faith, I'm convinced, is because few of them have truly been given a biblical worldview of all areas of life to understand the challenges when they get outside of our care. I was speaking at the University of Berkeley a few months ago and I talked to a church there, the largest church with the biggest college outreach in Berkeley. And I said, do you see students coming in? What happens to a lot of the Christian students? He said, you wouldn't believe it. He said the minute they have a professor stand up, because in the eyes of students, just being a professor gives you a degree of authority. And the professor says, well, we know evolution is true and God didn't create the world. Or we know the Bible's full of errors or it's just myths and nice stories. He said that thought often shatters the faith of a young person. And many of them never recover. Why are so many young people walking away from the faith? I'm convinced one big reason is we haven't really given them a biblical worldview about all areas of life. In fact, there's a study called the National Study of Youth and Religion. And they interviewed non-religious students who had left their faith. And they asked them, why did you walk away from the faith of your parents? You know what the number one answer was? The number one answer, 32% said, some type of intellectual skepticism. They said there's too many questions that can't be answered. They said, historically, there's no evidence. Scientifically, there's no proof. In his book, Unchristian, David Kinman, the president of the Barn Research Group, he says, we are learning that one of the primary reasons that ministry to teenagers fails to produce a lasting faith is because they're not being taught to think. He's right, isn't he? And you know what Barna would say? Barn would say that of this generation, about, he would say only 9% of adults and 3% of evangelical youth even have a biblical worldview. That's startling, isn't it? 9% of those who say, I'm a born again Christian, I'm an evangelical, actually have a biblical philosophy of all of life. And 3% of our young people. No wonder so many of them are chucking their faith when they get to college. Now, let me define for you what I mean by worldview, because I've been throwing this idea out there. Now, this is a little bit of a tricky concept. You'll be able to get it, even in the 8 o'clock service here this morning. I'm just kidding. Skip told me, he goes, hey, watch out for that first service. They're not very bright. So, I'm just kidding. Skip would never say that. It was Chip. So, here's the definition. Worldview, it's pretty tough. A view of the world. 
Now, in some ways, that's obvious, but let's think about this for a second. Every single person, you and I, have a worldview. It's a philosophy of life. It's a perspective of how we think the world actually works. And we live according to our perspective of life. It's kind of like a mental map of reality. Do any of you know that you can get lost using MapQuest? Actually, did anybody not know you can get lost? Right, Google Maps now has a little asterisk that says some of the maps, some of the cities, we, streets we send you on may no longer exist. That's not very comforting. Well, a physical map helps us navigate the physical world. And if it's incorrect, we get lost. If it's correct, we can get to our destination. A worldview is like a mental map of reality. But not about physical things, about non-physical spiritual things that are more important. So worldview answers questions such as, what does it mean to be human? What is the purpose of life? Does God exist? Has God spoken today? Is Jesus actually God? What type of book is the Bible? These basic questions, what does it mean? Where does happiness come from? What's the meaning of life? These kind of questions guide the way that we live and shape our experience of life. J.P. Moreland, one of my beloved professors from uh, college and seminary, he said, this is why truth is so powerful. It allows us to cooperate with reality, whether spiritual or physical, and tap into its power. As we learn to think correctly about specific scriptural teachings, uh, the soul or other important aspects of a Christian worldview, we're placed in touch with God and with those realities. And we thereby gain access to the power available to us to live in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus said, you shall know the truth. And what? The truth shall set you free. That's the power of truth. And a power of seeing the world and everything in it from a biblical perspective. I'm going to give you a little quiz very quickly because I'm a teacher. And I feel incomplete if I don't. Actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up on the board some, some uh, survey questions and then results later based upon the most in-depth study of the spiritual lives of teenagers today. These statistics are focused specifically on conservative Protestant teenagers. In other words, kids who say, I am born again an evangelical Christian. And this is what those who say they're Christians, the question I'm asking you is what, when pressed, do they actually believe about God? Okay, so I'll throw some up there and just take a guess of what you think. For example, what percentage of kids who say they're born again Christians actually believe God created the world but is not involved today? What percentage of kids hold that view? That God is like a clockmaker, wound up the universe like a clock, but step back, but is no longer involved anymore. Take a guess, write it down, or make a mental note. What percentage of kids actually hold a deistic view of God? Don't be alarmist and be like, 98% is not that bad. Don't worry. What about number two? Believe God is impersonal like a cosmic force. This is the Star Wars, New Agey, Oprah Winfrey view of God. That God is like an electrical current that pervades everything, but is not a personal being distinct from the universe. Okay, what percentage of conservative born-again Christians actually hold that view of God? 
Number three, maybe you definitely believe in reincarnation. Number four, are not assured of the existence of miracles. I'm not really sure miracles have happened in the past or really take place today. Number five, are not assured of the existence of evil spirits. Satan, demons, maybe they're chemicals in the brain, but they're not really real. Believe many religions may be true. Now let's see. Believe God created the world but is not involved today. 10%. 10% of students hold that view of God. How about believe God is impersonal like a cosmic force? 8%. Now before you think, oh, only 10%, 8%, that's not a lot. Realize the way the study was done, those are exhaustive categories. 18% is roughly 1 in 5. That means almost 1 in 5 of our born-again Christian kids do not really believe God is a personal being who relates to their life. Now, if you don't think God is a personal being who can answer prayers, why why pray to God for power and strength when you're being tempted? What's the point? You see, ideas about God have consequences. How about maybe you definitely believe in reincarnation? 33%. Think about how significant that is. How differently are you going to live your life if you think I might die and get another shot at it and a few more million shots to get it right versus I have one life and I will be held account before a holy and just and loving God for every thought and action that I have. Ideas have consequences, don't they? How about, uh, or not sure of the existence of miracles? 23%. One in four are not sure that our God is a God of miracles. Not assured of the existence of evil spirits? 42%. Think about that. Peter says that Satan is like a roaring lion intent upon devouring his prey. If you're not confident that Satan is real, how can you engage in real spiritual warfare and resist the devil like Peter admonishes us to? How about believe many religions may be true? Conservative, evangelical, born-again Christian kids? 48%. One in two. The American public as a whole, Pew Research poll, 70%. You know why that matters? Why does it matter you believe Jesus is the only way? Do you know there's at least a hundred verses in the New Testament that directly or indirectly say that Jesus is the only way to God? I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one gets the Father but by me. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Yet if you think Jesus is only one of many ways, why stand boldly up for your faith? What's the point? You see, you know why this matters so much? Because some of you might be thinking, well, why do we have to learn all these things in our minds? Shouldn't we just love God with our hearts and teach young people to be passionate about Jesus? That's important, but you know why it matters? You know what studies show? That in America, those who describe themselves as born-again Christians, statistically speaking, live no differently than those who don't. In terms of cheating on your taxes, cheating on your spouse, lying, physically hurting somebody, stealing something, there's no statistical difference in those who say they're born-again Christians from the rest 
of the population. Isn't that sad? But there's something that's interesting. There is a segment of born-again Christians who live differently, whose lives are markedly different from the world. And you know who it is? It's born-again Christians with a biblical worldview. That means, if we want to shape, shape the way that the church, or in particular young people live, one of the most important steps is to help them see the entire world, all of God's creation, from a biblical perspective. From a biblical perspective. David Kinnaman in the Barn Research Group, he said, people who have a biblical worldview are much more likely to act like Jesus. To see things such as life, people, and crises differently than most people do. And that's kind of obvious, isn't it? But it's true. See, my passion as somebody who works with young people, and I know you care about the next generation as well, is this. If we don't consciously train our kids and our grandkids to see the world from a biblical perspective, they will unconsciously accept the ideas of our world. If we don't consciously train this next generation to see the world biblically, they will unconsciously accept the ideas of the world. And that's what Paul says is one of our responsibilities. Look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. We're in a spiritual battle, but we don't fight with guns. There's not, or at least should not be, a Christian militia. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. He says we destroy false ideas that stand in the way of people seeing the world biblically. And by the way, Satan is the father of what? Satan is the father of lies that stands in the way of the knowledge of God. See, I'm convinced that here's what our task is with young people. Our job is to train young people to know that they know the truth. Our job is to train young people. And by our, I don't mean pastors. By our, I don't mean teachers. By our, I mean the body of Christ. Those who are followers of Jesus Christ have a responsibility to the next generation. Is to train young people to know that they know truth. Now you might be thinking, wait a minute, Sean, why are you getting all philosophical on me? Is it enough just to know the truth? Absolutely not. There's a big difference between knowing the truth and knowing that you know the truth. Here's how I'll give my students a test and say student A and student B comes in. Student A knows the truth, but didn't really study and doesn't know that she knows the truth. So she has no confidence. Student B comes in, knows the truth and the right answers, but studied and knows why she believes it. So she's far more confident and far more likely to get the answer right. You see, I believe confidence in the Christian faith comes not just from having truth, but from knowing that we know the truth. You see, our churches are filled with people who know the truth. But how many of us know that we know the truth? 
You see, we've bought into what I think is a lie that says Christianity is just something that's personal and privatized that I hold by blind faith, but not something that I know with confidence to be true. That's a lie that I believe comes from Satan. I really do. That it comes directly from powers below. See, it actually says in 1 John, you know why in every four verses we see the word knowledge or derivative of it such as no? Look at this, 1 John 2.21, I've not written to you because you do not know these things, but because you do know it. We know that God exists. We know that the scriptures are the word of God. We know that God is a trinity. We know that Jesus rose from the dead and that he is the only means of salvation. We know these things to be true. But here's the catch that makes it so difficult for young people to live according to this worldview today is we live in a culture that says when it comes to religion and when it comes to morality, there's no such thing as knowledge. Let me say that again. Christianity is a knowledge tradition. We know certain things to be true. But we live in a secular culture that says when it comes to religion and morality, there's no such thing as knowledge. Let me explain what I mean. Francis Schaeffer said decades ago, and I know some of you have read this, I believe he was a prophet to our culture and specifically the church. He said we live in what's called a two-story culture. Two-story culture, where at the upper level we have what he called the private sphere, where there's kind of subjective beliefs that can be true for you, but not true for you. They're personal, privatized beliefs that are to be kept in somebody's own life, but there's no public evidence for them. Then he said on the bottom we have a public sphere in which there's objective knowledge, things that we can know to be true. So on the lower sphere we have things such as science, things such as math, Maybe certain things of history in which there's knowledge, but in the upper category, religion and morality goes there and they're to be privatized in my own individual life. In fact, if you just watch the news one morning, you'll see that this is the working assumption of our culture. In fact, I'll give you an example during the elections of something our president said. Okay? This is not a political endorsement or criticism. It just says we got to think biblically and be careful wherever the message comes from. Listen to something he said during the election. He said, I'm a Christian. I believe in parents being able to provide children with religious instruction without interference from the state. But I also believe our schools are there to teach worldly knowledge and science. You see the difference? There's religious instruction in the privacy of your home, but then there's the public sphere where worldly knowledge and science is taught. And then he said this. He said, I believe in evolution. And I believe there's a difference between science and faith. That doesn't make faith any less important than science. It just means there are two different things. Do you see that? Faith is something that's personal. It's privatized. But it's not something we can know to be true. Science is where knowledge fits in. And it's something we can actually know about the world that we live in. Let me give you another example. I read a publication called The Week. And it's like Newsweek, Time, etc. And they had an article called New Evidence of a Gay Gene. And they found that if you take fruit flies and you tweak with their genes, it would change their sexual orientation. It sounds kind of fruity to me. 
Just calling it like it is. But what's important is what this Dr. Michael Wise of Case Reserve Western University said. Case Western Reserve University. Listen carefully. He said, this will take the discussion about sexual preference out of the realm of morality and put it in the realm of science. Do you see his point? He says, insofar as we're talking about morality, insofar as we're talking about religion, it's something that's privatized and it's personalized and it's subjective. But when science speaks, we have objective truth and knowledge. So you see what our culture says the Christian worldview is supposed to do? We are supposed to compartmentalize our faith into our personal lives, but not let it influence what we think is real and true and objective about the world that we live in. We're supposed to compartmentalize our faith. Let me show you how I think in, in particular this has affected this generation of young people. Studies show, for example that 67% of young people will say that faith is very or extremely important in their lives. That might sound very optimistic, but you guys know something about surveys, don't you? Or statistics. You can get statistics to say about anything you want based upon how you do what? How you ask the question. So in the National Survey of Youth and Religion, instead of first asking young people how important is faith to you, guess what they did? They went around the country interviewing thousands of students. They said, tell me what is most important in your life. That's a very different question, isn't it? And listen to what uh, Christian Smith, the author of the survey, said. He said, what rarely arises in such conversations are teens' religious identities, beliefs, experiences, or practices. Religion does not naturally seem to appear much on most teenagers' open-ended list of what really matters in their lives. Religion seems to become rather compartmentalized and backgrounded in the lived experiences of most U.S. teenagers. And then what he said next, for me when I read it, it's like the lights went on. I said, finally, I get it. Listen to what he said. He said, what a number of teens apparently mean in reporting that religion is very important in their lives is that religion is very important in the strictly religious sector of their lives. Religion influences them religiously. That is when it comes to church, basic beliefs, prayer, and so on, but not necessarily in other ways. That your faith is compartmentalized into my religious world, but it doesn't seep through and affect and transform the way that I really live. I'll give me an example of how this happened. Oh. Recently, my wife and I bought a new car. It was a minivan. My wife, when we got married, I told her, she'll be here in the later service. I said, just so you know, I'm not a minivan guy. I won't drive one. We won't own one. We won't park one in our garage. My parents had a minivan. Not going to happen in the McDowell household. Well, the economy tanks. Gas prices go up. And you have kids who like to fling open doors and bang the cars next to you. Minivans have these doors that open like this. I changed my mind. And in fact, now I don't even care. 
I drive a minivan and it doesn't matter to me. Can I get an amen from the male minivan drivers in the house? All right, two honest ones. That's good. Well, I went to my students the next day and I said, hey, these are high school students who've grown up in the Christian family and a lot of Christian school their whole lives. I said, yesterday my wife and I bought a new car. I said, do you think in any way my Christian convictions shape the buying of a car? And I got the response I'm guessing many of you have gotten from a young person before. She go, one girl goes, whatever. <laughs> Mr. McDowell, it's a car. I said, so I can completely shelf my Christian worldview when I buy a car? It has nothing to say to the buying of a car? And, I mean, the response is it took me 20 minutes, like pulling teeth, to get these kids to say anything and make the connection. Finally, the girl goes, I get it. She goes, Mr. McDowell, she was a senior. She goes, I know. If the car dealership that you bought the car from was going to take the proceeds from the purchase of that car to go fund abortions, then it would be immoral. Now, technically speaking, is she right? How many car dealerships do you think actually do that? (laughs) Do you see the disconnect? That my faith doesn't actually seep down and practically affect the way that I live. See, no sense that Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. And that everything I do, including the car I buy, will send a message about what it means to be Christian. Whether we want it to or not. No sense that it's actually not my money, but I am a steward of God's money. And how I spend it it should be reflected in how I buy a car. No sense that this slimy car salesman, as greasy as he may be, no offense if you're a car salesman. I apologize. (laughs) Usually I pick on lawyers. In fact, the other day I was speaking, I started off, you know, kind of tell jokes, warm up a crowd, and I was picking on lawyers. I was comparing lawyers to jerks. And this guy sitting in the front was just getting physically agitated. He was shaking. He was turning red. He runs up to me afterwards. He goes, I can't believe I'm so offended at your jokes. He goes, I can't believe you compare lawyers to jerks. I said, well, what are you, a lawyer? He goes, no, I'm a jerk. (laughs) No sense that this car salesman or whatever profession somebody's in is made in the image of God and deserves dignity and respect as a human being. You see what happened in the mind of this girl? Her Christian worldview is up here when I go to church, but it hasn't shaped what I actually think is true and real about the world that I live in. No wonder so many young people walk away from their faith when they're challenged at the level of the university. They've never been given the roots that Jesus so often talked about. Christian Smith said this. He said, what our interviews almost never uncovered among teens was a view that religion summons people to embrace an obedience to truth regardless of the personal consequences or rewards. Because religion is in this upper category. It's not actually about truth in the minds of so many young people. And then he said this. The language that dominates U.S. adolescent interests and thinking about life 
including the spiritual life, is primarily about personally feeling good and being happy. Isn't that how we frame what religion is about? That God is a cosmic therapist who exists to make my life better. Isn't that how we think about God? Go to church to make your life better. I can't think of anything or very little things more contrary to the message of Christ. This says it's not about you. Die to yourself and follow after me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now I know what some of you are thinking. Boy, when I get home, my kids are going to get it. (laughs) Kids are screwed up today. That's not my point. I have tremendous optimism and hope for this generation. Part of my point is to stir you and wake you up a little bit. I read the book Soul Searching that I've been talking about. At the very end, I was reading it and I was thinking the same thing. And then Christian Smith, he says, before you start to criticize young people, he says, before you start to criticize and put all the blame on our secular culture, he said, take a minute and take an honest look in the mirror. And ask yourself, where do you think young people get this idea? And where do you think their worldview is stemmed from? And you know what? All studies show that the primary influence on a young person's life, not the only one, the primary one, is the parents. That's why scripture over and over again admonishes the parents to take care of and to raise godly children. Yes, other influences are important, but it's the parents first and the church second to raise up the next generation. Let me give you just a couple quick thoughts. How do we actually do this? One thought, and this is a personal question for you. I'm convinced that we can only give to the next generation what we first have ourselves. We can only pass on our spiritual depth that's within us to the next generation. And the question is, how much, how passionate and, and committed are you to building a Christian worldview? Does it seep into all levels of your life? Because realize, there's a biblical worldview on everything. Everything can be seen through a biblical perspective. Health, science, government, relationships. All of this is God's creation. My dad used to say to me, son, if something is biblical, it's true. If something is true, it's biblical. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Have you taken the time and do you commit yourself to building a biblical worldview? Second, you know what's so powerful about the, the Christian worldview? You know what studies show? There's a study called the College Transition Project. And they were asking, how do we pass on this faith to kids and help them stay strong in college? After all the research, you know what they said? They said the best advice we can give to parents, teachers, grandparents, mentors is this. Is have worldview conversations in the context of a relationship with young people. You see, 50 years ago, the main things that affected the passing, the transference of a worldview to the next generation, two things that are important that are stand out. One was the pictures that people put up in the home. The pictures you put up in a home showed the values of your family and shaped the worldview of a young person. Second was the conversations with parents over the dinner table. Now what happens? 
We have the TV on. We don't stop and relate as a family and connect. That's where stories are told, where values are shared, and where spiritual truths are imparted. You know, conversations, this is a conversation generation. And I've heard many people say, well, young people aren't interested in me. They think I'm old. And I say, you know what? They might be putting that front on. But every single young person I've ever met, their heart says, I want a parent. I want an adult. I want somebody who's an adult figure to look and reach into my heart and say, you matter. You're important to me. And build a relationship with me and help me think about life. Friends, this generation is facing more challenges than any generation in history. There's more opportunities. But my wife and I, sometimes we look at each other and say, now remind me why we're even raising kids today. And sometimes I start to fear about the opportunities. Then I remember, you know what the scripture says? There's only one thing we're supposed to fear. It's not our culture. It's not Satan. It's to have a proper fear of God. Because God has already won the battle. The question is, will we take that truth and be a conduit to the next generation? I know because I know your pastoral staff here that building a biblical worldview is important in this church. But it's only going to go as deep as each one of us hold on to this and say, we're going to learn it ourselves and pass it on to our kids. We're going to make a difference in their lives. Let me wrap up by showing you a couple things. You can tell I am passionate about this subject. I have committed my life to helping people in the church and helping young people. My father and I have written a few resources that would maybe help you out in this area. In particular, uh, a lot of what I talked about this morning is in my book. For five years, my dad and I worked on a book called Evidence for the Resurrection. We talked about how historically you can actually know with confidence that Jesus was risen from the dead. And that truth affects all of how we look at ourselves, relate to other people, how we face death, how we parent. We talked about that. We also did kind of fun. We did a kid's book and a teen book on the resurrection, how it affects their life, which was a blast. And then I wrote a book on the question of intelligent design with a PhD named William Dembski. It won an award a few weeks ago for being, and they said, finally someone took these scientific breakthroughs and made it accessible to the lay person. And some of the scientific evidence would give you goosebumps when you realize the power of, it says in Psalms 19, 1 and 2, that God has spoken through creation. We can actually know that to be true. And then a book for students called Ethics, where I really talk about a lot of what I talked about this morning for young people. But then I walk them through issues like abortion, homosexuality, war, sexuality, marriage, and say, how do we think biblically about these issues? And then someone I did this morning, Apologetics for a New Generation, how do we effectively reach a new generation for Christ? The way that they think, some of their thought processes, and Skip actually contributed a little bit of that for me. And then the last one my dad wrote 30 years ago called More Than a Carpenter, where it shares a story of trying to disprove Christianity and then becoming a believer. But not only finding that it's true, but how it transformed his life as he shared last year when we were at the, the big festival over at the park. And we just released an update where we put in some new, on the internet, there's new questions about the historical Jesus and movies like Da Vinci Code. And I put in a new chapter responding to the new atheist showing that the scientific case is powerful. If those help you out, praise God. I think they're at the book table over there. Thank you for having me this morning. It's a treat to be with a church 
that really gets it. God bless you in your ministry. Thank you. Let me, uh, let me pray and we'll worship. Father, I thank you for what you're doing here in this city. God, we thank you for Al- Calvary Albuquerque and for each person here in particular. God, I pray if we've been stirred up this morning about the next generation, God, help us not to sit by and think it's somebody else's responsibility. But you call each of us as believers in Jesus Christ to reach out and to pass on our values to this generation so they can faithfully become ambassadors for you. God, continue to bless this church and use them in powerful ways to be a light to a hurting and a broken world. God, we love you and we praise things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.